you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in the book of First Peter, continuing our series going through the, the book of First Peter, uh, looking at First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 this morning, uh, picking up where we left off last week in that series. If you're looking for First Peter in your Bible, it's going to be toward the back, uh, Hebrews, James, First Peter, and then you've only got a few before uh, you hit Revelation, so if you hit Revelation, you went too far. First Peter chapter 2 looking at verses 9 through 12 this morning. It says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When you become a U.S. citizen, when you immigrate, the the final step in the process is that you take what's called the oath of allegiance. You have to declare that you are no longer loyal to any other nation. You have to pledge to support and defend the Constitution, to remain loyal to this nation and its Constitution, to protect, preserve, and defend it when called upon. And you can't do any of this half-heartedly. It has to be without any mental reservation on your part. When you become a U.S. citizen, you don't get to just call yourself a citizen or just receive the benefits of being a citizen. You have to act like one. You have to uphold the oath of your allegiance to this country. Today's verses, they serve kind of as the fulcrum, the, the tipping point for the entire book, uh, book of 1 Peter. Up to this point, the focus has been primarily on what God has done for us in choosing to save us from our sins and calling us to the holy lives that we are to live in worship of Him. But these verses today make a change from being focused on who God has made you to a focus on what that means for you in a specific area of your life. Because you're now a citizen of God's kingdom, how should you then live is the question that this, these verses start to answer in our text this morning. The rest of the book is going to emphasize this new life that you live in light of what God has done for you, its impact on specific areas. But today's verses summarize what came before, who God has made you to be, and what that means for you. How should you live in light of his work? So today we'll see these two new aspects of the Christian life in these verses. The first new aspect of the Christian life that we'll see today in our verses is that the Christian life is for a new people. It's for a new people. Look back at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This new people that the verses make clear here is actually talking about the new Israel, the true church, the true Israel, the true people of God. So I think you need to notice the parallels between what Peter is saying here and what God has said in the past to Moses, to his people of Israel, as he was giving the law to the people that he had just redeemed out of their slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 19, verse 5, he says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So many of those phrases that I just read are straight up repeated here in our verses today. But there are references to the nation of Israel in our verses as well. The language from verse 10 of not a people and now God's people, of not having received mercy and now receiving mercy. That's what God called his nation of Israel in Hosea. Peter calls the unbelievers around them Gentiles, non-Jews in verse 12. Even though many of the churches that he was writing to in this letter, they weren't ethnic Jews. They were not ethnic Jews. They were ethnic Gentiles as well. He's saying that this people... This new church, this new and true Israel, is relating to God as his people, as the Israelites related to him in the past. He's been making similar parallels throughout the letter to this point, but now it comes to a head, and he is crystal clear that these elect exiles are more God's people now than the nation of Israel was God's people in the Old Testament. And I think that that's really important for us to get here as we talk about the new people who live the Christian life, because it helps us put our Bibles together. It helps us understand where we fit in this story. Without this kind of understanding, it would be really easy to see God's work in the Old Testament toward the nation of Israel and wonder, what does that have to do with you? Where do you fit in light of what he is doing with them then? It would be really easy to see that work and to look at a map today and wonder what is going on with the nation of Israel. It would be really easy to look at that and see what the New Testament says and think that the church probably wasn't God's plan A. Rather, it was his backup plan whenever that whole Israel thing didn't work out. But I think when you understand that the new people of God, his church, is the new, the the true Israel, then I think you're able to see how Scripture opens up before you. You can see that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, and that all the inheritance of Christ is given to his church. Not an ethnic people, not a national people, not a nation of Israel. You see your role in this story. You see that he has given this to his church to spread his gospel, to bring in the aliens and the foreigners, just as you have been brought in to this new nation, this new people. This Christian life is for a new people, his church, who is the true and new Israel. And this church, these people, we are a chosen race. That theme of being chosen by God just keeps popping up in this letter over and over. We can't get away from it. Just as Christ is rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, we who are united to Christ are just as chosen, just as precious. And I think the race component is important to highlight because it's not that a specific race has been chosen. Rather, those who have been chosen have come together to form a new race. People from every tribe, every tongue, every nation come together to form God's people, His one chosen race of every color, of every background, united in the worship of Him. We're a chosen race and a royal priesthood. An aspect that we looked at a little more in depth last week, that we have specific functions to perform as his people, to bring spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, to give him our worship, our praise, our good works. That's a function that we perform for ourselves and also on behalf of those around us because the job of the priest is to provide access to God. And now Christ, the great high priest, has provided access to God for all men And we, as under-priests, as lesser priests, reveal that access to those men and show them the way to the Father through Jesus Christ. We are a holy nation. 
You now, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, you have lost your primary ethnic identity because you're part of the chosen race of Christ. You've lost your primary vocational function because you are now a part of his royal priesthood. But you've also lost your primary earthly citizenship because you are a part of God's holy nation. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, then you are more a Christian than you are an American. That's why we do some of the things that we do here. You may not have even noticed, but there is no flag in this worship center, in this sanctuary. When you come to church the Sunday before July 4th, we sing the same songs that we sing every other week. We don't sing the national anthem or God Bless America. Okay, I grew up in a church where we sang the songs of the armed forces on the Sunday before Memorial Day and Veterans Day. We sang God Bless America on the Sunday before July 4th. I don't think it made them evil to do that. And I think I'm pretty patriotic. I love our country and much of what it stands for. But more than I love our country, I love our God. So just because it doesn't make someone evil to do those things doesn't mean that those are the things that we're supposed to do. Because our God is not an American. I am proud to be American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died and gave that right to me. But his kingdom is not of this world. And his kingdom is where my citizenship really is. And I absolutely won't forget the man who died and gave that right to me. And I don't say any of that to try to get you to be less patriotic or whatever. My goal isn't to try to make you feel like less of an American. I say it because I think when we have that kind of perspective, that biblical perspective, that we are a part of his holy nation, I think it actually frees you to be a Christian in our earthly nation the way God intended us to be. It frees me not to be defined by the political party that I choose to vote for. It frees me to love and appreciate what is good about our country and to hate and try to change the things that are evil. It frees me to be faithful to my true citizenship no matter what happens to this nation that's called America. It reminds me that I'm part of a holy nation. And this holy nation wasn't founded in 1776. Think about it. As Peter is writing these words to Christians in the Roman Empire, he's highlighting that the nation they currently live in, that Roman Empire, is not a holy nation. That they're not truly a part of that people. But they're part of a nation that is holy. And isn't that a comforting thought? The U.S. has never been a holy nation. But I think our eyes are probably more open to that reality now than they've been for a while. So we can now call that spade a spade because my allegiance isn't ultimately to this earthly nation. It's to my heavenly citizenship. Now, I think that has implications for my earthly citizenship. That means I I think I am an American in a certain way. It doesn't mean that I forget about being a Christian whenever I go to the voting booth. It means that I'm fully a Christian whenever I go to the voting booth. We who are his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, We are all these things because we don't belong to anyone but Christ. We are a people for his own possession. And that's special. That's important here because Peter's communicating something particular about this. I mean, we know all things belong to God, the earth and all that is within it. So all people everywhere are his property as the creator already. 
But to be a people for his own possession, I think that communicates something about who we are and about the way which we are his, as opposed to everyone else who is his. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I'm supposed to love all mankind, really. I'm supposed to love you all as fellow church members and as your pastor. But I also have a love for my wife that is special and particular from those other loves. It's directed only toward her. It isn't nor should be shared between her and anyone else. She is a woman for my own possession and I am a man for hers. We belong to each other. So God, as our God, and we as his people, have a special and particular relationship that isn't shared among anyone else. This new Israel, this new people that we are a part of, we are God's possession. And we are these things for a specific purpose. Look back at verse 9. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, we don't just receive these benefits and enjoy these blessings from God, though we do receive these benefits and enjoy these blessings. We are his people to proclaim his excellencies. We are his people to worship him. That's another way in which we know that we are the new Israel. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 21, when God is talking about his people, the nation of Israel at that point, he says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We have that same mandate given to us now as his people now. We declare his praise. We sing his songs, which are about him. We preach his words about his gospel. We pray to him in praise of him. We are to live our entire lives no longer as if we are the point of them, but as if he is, because he is. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. So we proclaim his excellencies, his goodness, and we proclaim what he has done for us by calling us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our reasoning, and it's also our method. We do all this, we proclaim his excellencies because he is excellent, and because he has called us out of darkness into light. And we do all this by proclaiming that he is excellent, and that he calls man out of darkness into light. My goal every week in preaching to you is for you to walk away seeing his excellence. It's my prayer every week that through these words, you are continually called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Okay, I think I could probably be funnier on a Sunday morning. I could definitely be shorter on a Sunday morning. I definitely could do different things on a Sunday morning. I could wear different clothes. I could have more props and more illustrations. But my goal isn't for you to walk away thinking that I'm funny. My goal is for you to walk away thinking that God is excellent. In fact, to the degree that you walk away thinking, man, he sure is funny, that probably is the degree to which you no longer think that God is excellent because your focus has been drawn away from God, the one who actually is excellent, and toward whatever this is. My goal is for you to see him as he is, as truly as I can get that across to you. To whatever extent you notice me, 
is probably the extent that you are not noticing him. That can't be our method. Our method has to be God is excellent and God is calling you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I wonder if that's what we are actually communicating whenever we gather on Sunday mornings. We think that we're communicating those things, but I wonder if that's what we actually are doing. I think sometimes we tend to get the form, we get the substance, we get the words right, but we sometimes miss the passion that should come with that. If you walk in and say, good morning, with a frown, how good could that morning really be? If we mumble, in Christ alone, my hope is found, he is my life, my strength, my song, while we're looking down, what kind of hope is that that he's giving you in that moment? We can believe that God is excellent, but if we don't convey that in how we communicate it, then how excellent do we really think he is? How marvelous is this light if we're whispering about it in the dark? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I think we've got to act like that. We weren't a people. We were only Conwavians. But now we are God's people. We went from homeless to oceanfront. We hadn't received mercy. We were alone in our sorrows and dead in our sins. We were biding time on death row, just waiting for them to pull the lever. But now we've received mercy. It's this mercy that has made us his people, his new and true Israel in the Christian life. It's the fact that though we were dead in our sin, though we were drowning and dying apart from God and actually loving every second of it, God loved us too much to let that be the end of our story. Rather than allowing us to stay in our sin, to continue eating the dirt that we were caught in, rather than allowing us to receive the just punishment of our sin because we've offended a holy God, he loved us enough to intervene. He sent Christ to live the holy life that we couldn't live as a representative in our place. And he continued in that obedience to the point of death on the cross so that he would bear our sins and die the death that we should be dying. So now through his atonement, our sins are paid for. But because he didn't stay dead, but rose up from the grave on the third day, he has eternal life now to give to us his people. And we can receive that life. We can receive this mercy, which makes us his people, by repenting of our sins and believing that Christ in his finished work has saved us from the consequences of our sins by grace, through faith. That's how we become God's people in this new Christian life. That's what he's done for us. We weren't a people even. And now we not only are a people, we are God's people. We hadn't received any kind of mercy and now we have received mercy to proclaim his excellencies, the one who saved us, the one who took us out of the miry bog and set our feet on solid ground, the one who took our ashes and gave us beauty for them. That's who we are as a people. And it impacts what we do now in light of being his people. Because we are God's people in this Christian life, we have a new way of life. That's the second new aspect of the Christian life from today's verses. We have a new way of life. Look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles 
to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As I mentioned earlier, if you were to make an outline of the book of 1 Peter, today's verses would be in two different sections. Up until this point, Peter's been focusing on what God has done for us. In causing us to be born again, he has brought his plans to fruition. He has created a new people who should be holy as God is holy. There's been some application, some commands in this section, but the focus has been on the foundation of what God is doing in making a new people. But now in verses 11 and 12, we get to what's really the the rest of the letter, a look at how we, as God's people, should live in light of what God has done. Because we now can see clearly the gospel of Jesus in saving us, we can now live as his people no matter what context we might be in. The rest of the book tells us how to live in light of the gospel in a hostile culture when it comes to authority, when it comes to marriage relationships, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to persecution, when it comes to pastoring and church life. Because we are the new people that he has made us to be, we should have a new way of life. And this new way of life is important to remember because of the effects of our citizenship. Because we're part of his holy nation and kingdom, we aren't at home here. That makes us functionally foreigners, strangers, aliens in a foreign land. That's what Peter's getting across by calling us sojourners and exiles. We aren't going to look or talk or act like everyone else that's around us because this world, this place is not our home. Okay, I remember when I was in college at the, at the U of A, about half my roommates in the house I lived in, lived in one two-ish story house with six guys. Uh, and it was upkept in the way that you would think one two-ish story house with six guys would be. And we would constantly have people coming over out of town, old friends, whatever. About half of my house, about half of my roommates were from the state of Texas. About half of the University of Arkansas is from the state of Texas. And they had old friends from high school come in on the weekend that the University of Arkansas was playing Texas A&M in Fayetteville in 2013. Old high school friends who now were at Texas A&M came in to stay with us and go to the game with us. And they just weren't like we were. They didn't fit. They weren't like you and I would be. We were in the middle of the student section, a sea of red, and then these two little maroon dots right in the middle of everyone else. Everyone else is clapping and cheering when the good guys are doing stuff, and they're clapping and cheering when the villains are scoring and winning. We would have like normal cheers, go hogs type things, and they had like weird hand motion, rain dance things that they did all the time. They got up at midnight the night before to go stand on a street corner and yell. I don't know what they yelled, but that's what they did. They weren't like us. They did not fit. They were foreigners and strangers in our land. And people weren't just mad at them for being in the middle of the student section and doing these things. They were mad at us for bringing these people into the middle of the student section to do these things in the middle of this game, which we lost, by the way. They didn't fit because they weren't 
of us. They didn't belong here. They're not like we were. These differences, they were noticeable because of how and who they were. And I think for Christians, it should be similar. Hopefully not in the the A&M cult way, the all-male cheerleader, dorky midnight monologue way. But we should be different for sure. And our difference, that's actually part of what makes us compelling. You see, if we're the same as everyone else, why would they care what we say we believe? When we say that I believe something differently from you, but I look exactly the same way that you do, what difference do those beliefs have on our lifestyle? What difference do those beliefs make? How big a deal, how important can they really be if they have zero effect in the way that you live your life? We are going to be different. And the primary way that this should work itself out is by abstaining from the passions of our flesh. You see, everyone else, they may indulge the flesh. They may acquiesce to their sinful nature. They may obey their sinful desires. But the difference between them and us is that while we may even still experience some of these same desires, it's not like those totally and immediately go away. We're still going to be drawn to those same passions of the flesh in some sense. Where others can indulge them, we are to abstain from them. We're supposed to deny those desires, which used to define us, and which people around us probably still live under. Peter says all these fleshly passions, they're waging war against our souls. I think that means we have to wage war back. When one party, when one person decides to have a war, the one being warred against can't just decline. Okay, Hitler cannot be appeased. Your options are to fight or lose. So if these passions are waging war against us, then when you don't fight back, when you don't wage war back, you're not rising above the conflict, you're dying. John Owen, in his book on the mortification, which means the putting to death, the killing of sin, he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Your fleshly desires, they're warring against you. And if you are not actively putting up a fight, that means you're losing. And this is a war for your soul. You can't afford to lose this. If you think that you can bop along through life, if you think that you can live just like everyone else around you does, as if you're not a sojourner and exile, if you think that you can be casual about your Christian life, if you, think, if you think that you can think about it once a week because it's Sunday, but then forget it the rest of the week, if you think that the sins you commit aren't that big a deal because you can't see anyone else being harmed by them, then you're going to lose. Those passions are waging war against your soul and you are dying under that fight without having any idea that that's what's happening. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to have you. Its desire is to kill you. It is you or your sin. Only one of you get to survive. And I'm afraid that the relative comfort of our lives pushes the reality of war outside the frame of our reference. As long as we don't see any conflict with our way of life and what God has called us to, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we get the best of both worlds somehow. But the one who's behind enemy lines, he can't afford to live that way. 
For him, the war never stops. That's what makes the pattern of our lives different from those who are at home here. We are making war against sin, and they're not. We show up here every week to be reminded of the gospel, to prepare ourselves for another week of war against our own flesh. We read this ancient book over and over. We pray. We see the sin in our lives, and we acknowledge it. We repent of it. We hope to no longer walk in it. Who else does that? Who else in our lives, who else around us is doing any of those things? Who else is trying to memorize whole chapters of the Bible as some of you are doing? Peter's urging us to abstain from the passions of our flesh because this is how we live as sojourners and exiles in wartime. But even though it's wartime for us, we can't forget who the actual enemy is because our enemy is not the person with different citizenship who's next to us. We're not warring against him. We're warring against our own sin. And part of that war is actually to ensure that he thinks about us in a certain way. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our conduct among the Gentiles, which in Peter's continued metaphor isn't an ethnic identity because Gentile, looking at them, all, all of you, I'm going to guess, Gentiles. It's not an ethnic identity. It's how he's talking about non-believers, those who are not yet part of the true Israel. Our conduct among them, it, it has to be honorable. It has to be right and true. But it also has to be seen as right and true. So you may be tempted to, but I don't think we're actually allowed to stop caring what people think about us. While we can't allow the opinion of the Gentiles to keep us from following God, we can't either completely ignore what they think. If evangelical has become a dirty word in the wider culture, not because we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, but because in their minds, evangelical means hypocrite. It means sold out to a political party. Then I think that has to matter to us. We keep our conduct honorable in the goal of allowing them to see this honor, even if that honorable conduct gets misinterpreted. We're honorable even though what we know to be good may be called evil. Peter isn't saying to be honorable so that no one will call us evildoers. He's assuming that Christians are going to be called evil by those around us so that when they speak against you as evildoers, there is no option for everyone to always like you when you're following Jesus. They didn't all like Jesus when he was being Jesus. There's no option for everyone always agreeing with us when we're following Jesus. We're going to be spoken against as evildoers if we're following Christ. But even in the face of that reality, we have to remember who the enemy is. Our fight, it's not against the ones who are calling us evil. It's against evil itself. So that means we have to keep our conduct honorable among the unbelievers around us. Not just because that's part of how we wage war against our own sin, but because that's how they might be won over to the Lord themselves. 
our honor, our good deeds, they should be performed in such a way that they might see our deeds and glorify God because of them, our deeds. And this idea, I think it's falling out of favor with a lot of Christians right now. We're in a movement, we're in a moment where people are starting to think that the best thing that you can do for the truth is to fight for it. Ask non-Christians what they think about us right now, and you're pretty unlikely to hear anything positive. There are movements right now trying to make people agree with us through our laws. There are movements trying to fight fire with fire, to be known for being loud and obnoxious just because facts don't care about your feelings. There are movements who care more about hating who they hate than believing what they claim to believe. I think the idea of honorable conduct among those who disagree with you, that's not something we really talk about that much anymore. But it's what Peter's calling us to. It's what the Christian is called to. Not just because we're supposed to be about what is honorable, but because by that honorable conduct, we might bring others with us into this new people, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That doesn't mean we don't still fight for what's true. That doesn't mean we don't still hold to what's true. That doesn't mean we don't still stand up in the midst of persecution and in the midst of people not liking us. But it means we don't do that with our nose stuck in their face. It means we do that humbly. It means we do that honorably, nobly. We do that in a way that turns the other cheek before it punches back. And I don't know that those ideas are as popular as they once were among people who think like you and I do. We're supposed to keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And there's some debate as to what that means, the day of visitation. Maybe it's talking about the final judgment, that that's the day of visitation, that when he comes to judge is what it's talking about. But I'm convinced that it's talking about the day on which God visits them with the gospel. The day on which their eyes are open to the truth of who God is and what he's done for them. The day on which they can repent and believe. I think the day of visitation is a day when that option is still open for them. Rather than a day when it's already too late for them. Peter's saying that the way you act as a Christian, as an elect exile, as a sojourner and stranger in this land, that that has an effect on their receptiveness to the gospel's message. That what you do can impact their salvation. That your conduct matters, not just in and of itself because you should be honorable, but that your conduct matters because by your honorable conduct, someone else might actually be saved from their dishonorable conduct. So you should wage war. You should keep your conduct honorable among them because by doing so, you might save them. And that is a totally foreign concept in most of our world. Having a specific identity is fine as long as you don't act differently because of it. As long as you act like everyone else, no one really cares what your identity is. But when your new identity as part of God's people causes you to act like a sojourner and exile who acts honorably even when that conduct is called evil, I think that's when our difference starts to become compelling. I think that's when that difference gives you the opportunity to reveal the difference in your identity, the difference in your message, to be able to share that with someone else and to bring them into this new identity. 
This new way of life that is caused by becoming part of a new people will be what Peter keeps coming back to throughout the rest of the letter. And I hope it's what we keep coming back to together each week as we continue to study this letter that Peter's given us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to gather with your new people. Thank you for making us a new people. That by your mercy, by your grace given to us, though we were not a people, we are now people. And though we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. Help for us to understand our identity, to know who we are in you, to be true to our true citizenship, and to live a life that is honorable among the Gentiles, that they may see our good deeds and glorify you on the day of visitation. And God, we pray that the day of visitation for each one of those people will come, that they'll be receptive to it, and that we won't be a hindrance in anyone's way. That just as you've given us mercy, you might give them mercy. That just as we are to love you, that they might love you. Help for our new identities to result in new lives lived out. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.